Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. Ruth, say your last name for me. It is Seeley, like the mattress company. Ruth Seeley is our guest. Ruth is a works for Red Hat as part of the Fedora Community Project, and we're going to get to talk tonight about openness, education, and making. Lots of fun, Ruth. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So to those of you in the audience, I'm interested in how the level is between my voice and Ruth's voice. I have limited capability here that we've brought her in through the telephone system. But I'm going to try and increase the volume from Ruth and let me know how we do. It's hard, I know it's hard if my volume is significantly different than hers. But I'm glad. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. And we express appreciation to Blackboard Collaborate for providing us with this synchronous platform. It is the fifth anniversary of Classroom 2.0. 2.0. Go to classroom20.com. Lots of fun stuff going on. Uh, especially fun is upcoming for the uh, for the ISTE conference. Our shadow conference, our crowdsourced parallel set of events. Thanks to ISTE for allowing us to do this. The events start on Saturday with ISTE uh, with Social EdCon. And that's an all-day unconference held all day Saturday before ISTE. Uh, Sunday, we have a Global Education Summit. Uh, and then Monday through Wednesday, we have the Bloggers Cafe and ISTE Live. If you've never presented at ISTE or you didn't get your submission in on time, you can sign up at ISTE Live to uh, actually give a presentation. And not only in front of a live audience, but streamed out. So go to isteunplugged.com. Uh, Social Learning Summit was a huge success in April. All of those sessions are recorded. SocialLearningSummit.com or go to Classroom20.com and look for the link all about social media and education. Coming up, the Library 2.0 conference and the Global Education Conference um, website for the Library 2.0 is uh, Library2012.com and the Global Education Conference is GlobalEducationConference.com. Those events are free. Coming up in the future of education, lots of fun interviews. Uh, about half of these were added within the last couple of days. I won't go through them again, but Lee Rainey from Pew, uh, Gordon Dryden from New Zealand, Tony Wagner from Harvard, Ron Walk, uh, just a great lineup, futureofeducation.com. If you've missed any of our sessions, they are all in full Blackboard Collaborate versions, recorded versions, plus MP3. And you are um, most welcome to download and listen to any of those uh, over 250 sessions. I think we may be closing in on 300. So this is a chance to let you know, to have you let us know where you're participating from. Now to the left of the whiteboard, look for the icon. It's the star. It's the second one down. Double click on that and then click on the map. And it looks like New Zealand. Bill Allred is here, obviously. It must be Bill. Hawaii. Yeah, nice spread tonight. Feel free to put your 
location, the time, and the temperature in the chat. It's always fun to know where people are listening from. We are sure glad to have you here. Is someone in the Caribbean? Can, can the rest of us go there? What's that? You, you asked if someone was in the Caribbean. I said, and can the rest of us We'd like to all be there, wouldn't we? Although I don't know what the weather's like. Warm, very warm, Leroy says. Wherever you're listening from, we sure are glad to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, we still we got a little bit of a late start, but are sure glad to have you here. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, where should we start? Well, first I'd like you to explain what Red Hat is, what Fedora is, and and sort of the role that those two um, named organizations play and their relationship to uh, this topic of openness. Sure. Red Hat started in 1993 with Linux, which at the time was called Red Hat Linux. Today it's Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and that was the result of some changes that happened, I want to say around 2000, 2001, uh, where Red Hat had been sold in Best Buy big box type stores, literally in a box, Red Hat Linux, you go pick up your box at the store. And as internet download speeds became faster and it was easier to download software online, that was decreasingly a viable business model. And that was one of several factors that led to a change in Red Hat's business model. And so today, we have what's called Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And we sell not the software, but subscriptions to uh, support and services and so forth for not only Red Hat Enterprise Linux, but a whole suite of enterprise software, middleware, and uh, lots of things that happen at a data center that, that most people don't ever even realize happen. Fedora is the community-driven free version of Linux that Red Hat sponsors the project. And so anyone at all, anywhere, can contribute to the Fedora project. You don't even have to be a programmer. You can contribute to the documentation or the marketing or the artwork or any number of functions that, that aren't programming related. And uh, Fedora's distribution then feeds into Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Red Hat pulls from Fedora and hardens the software and makes it ready for companies to use and, uh, and incorporates all of that into Red Hat Enterprise Linux. What that has to do with all of this open source education stuff and, and all of that, well, for, for one thing, a lot of open education software runs on Linux, which is great, and really lowers the financial barrier to entry for a lot of people who otherwise couldn't participate. And so you can run all of that free education software on Linux, which is the free operating system. And that's how you get very low-cost systems, like the OLPC. We launched opensource.com about two, two and a half years ago. It's, uh, there's a banner at the top that calls it a Red Hat community service. And what we wanted to do with opensource.com was talk about how all of those principles that made open source software very successful, and it has been for Red Hat and other companies. Red Hat became a billion-dollar public company as of April of this year. Those principles that make open source 
successful for software development, like collaboration and transparency and rapid prototyping, how those could be applied in other, other ways, and how they are being applied in other ways, and how they're very successful in those places. So opensource.com is not about software. It's not about technology, although we do talk about those things from time to time. It's about applying those principles in other ways. And one of the big ways is education. So we split the site into what we call channels. It's sections, just like your newspaper has sections. And it's business, education, government, health, law, and life is the, the catch-all channel or something that didn't fit somewhere else goes in the life channel. So um, there's an interesting sort of backstory here with open source software. Because I ran a conference, co-chaired a conference called K12 Open Minds, which was all around open source software and education for three years, and then led the open source pavilion at the ISTE show for five or six years. And really, about a year ago, it became pretty clear that open source as a movement, at least in K12 education, had uh, fallen under the sword of Google Apps for Ed, uh, in part because of the tremendous cost savings, but in part because just of the convenience. Um, did we lose something important there? Well, can this come back? Or, or does the movement to the cloud really change sort of the adoptability of open source? Did we lose something in, in the Google Apps? Or I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not sure I quite understood what you're asking. Well, has that have we turned a corner that's going to be hard to go, to go back? Is is the idea of schools running open source software um, on their own servers um, not going? Has that disappeared with the cloud? No, not any more than than everyone else has moved all of their stuff to the cloud. And I think, like with uh, a lot of things, education will lag behind that curve. I know my kids' classrooms certainly haven't moved to the cloud in almost any fashion at all, other than uh, the way they they store syllabi and things like that on on Blackboard. But um, I, I think it'll be a long time before everything entirely goes to the cloud. Well, there are some interesting open aspects uh, to the discussion around the cloud. And in particular, I think Richard Stallman for some time now has been kind of um, arguing that um, data and privacy become sort of core issues when you move to the crowd. That still feels like it's very much a part of the open story, right? Right. Well, so one of the, the main principles that I talk about, I, when I started giving talks about what opensource.com is doing a year, year and a half ago, I quickly realized that as soon as you say open source, people jump to, to software and they block out anything else. And so I stopped saying the words open source and started talking about whatever principle I really meant. And one of those primary principles I talk about is transparency. But uh, in education in particular and in health healthcare apps in particular, the flip side of transparency is privacy and security. And uh, we've seen over and over again that that is not a problem that the cloud has solved yet. And it's, it's certainly a, a primary concern for students and parents. OK, so if someone uh, goes to opensource.com, what kind of stories are they going to see? And uh, in particular, 
which stories do you have responsibility for? I'm, I was thinking you were over the life channel. Is that correct? I, I am. In in uh, official sorts of terms, I, we call them moderators. Most most people would probably call them editors of the Life Channel. But I've written about twenty percent of the content across the entire site thus far, uh, in, including in all of the channels, including the Education Channel. I've recently moved. The reason I'm talking about Fedora more these days is because uh, I was on the team within Red Hat that originally started up OpenSource.com. And a few weeks ago, I moved to a new team we have called Open Source and Standards, where I'm focusing on Fedora more. So I'm not abandoning OpenSource.com. I'm still working on it, but I probably won't be writing that 20% of the content anymore either. <laughs> so if you go to the, the education channel, you will find, uh, well, so OpenSource.com runs like an open source community. It, we have contributions from anybody who's willing to contribute. And so what you'll find, is what someone was interested in contributing at that given time. And uh, ideally, it's, it's content that is interesting to what is happening at that given moment. If you start scrolling back in the education channel right now a little bit, there's, there's timeless things like about unschooling and, and how those principles relate to open source. But then uh, there's a bit about how Blackboard, which we're here on, ties into open source a little bit. Um, there's open research stuff, open access, library questions. There are articles about how different places around the world are doing things. One of my favorite stories we've had is a video you can go watch about the Open High School of Utah, which is applying open source not just to the technologies, but across the entire school. And so it enables kids to go to high school in Utah, but while not being in Utah, they've got one kid who travels as a champion skateboarder and one girl who volunteers at orphanages in China, but they're going to high school in Utah at the same time and doing it with open materials as education resources. So I was at a conference recently with David Wiley, who's um, sort of behind that initiative. And the discussion was around the benefits of openness in education. And we asked David the question, you know, what's been the primary benefit of openness for the uh, open online high school? And his response was that it allowed the teachers to um, have control over the curricular content and every year to rewrite it and to match what they wanted. But it wasn't, uh, in his answer, wasn't we're transforming education. It was a very sort of practical response. Do people sometimes pin too much hope on openness to transform education? Um, or is there really a direct connection between openness and some of the kind of deeper reform movements in education? Uh, that's an interesting question. I probably tend to be something of an idealist and think that openness is changing everything everywhere for the better all the time, even if I know that that's I'm not, not necessarily 100% true, but like I said, I'm an idealist. Uh, and, but then, and I think David is probably more of a practical person and sees the, the bottom line benefits. And, and in the sense of financial bottom lines, that's certainly another major benefit uh, for openness changing education. It makes a huge difference. But I do think that uh, applying openness to the classroom can benefit in a lot of ways. There's one story that we posted not long ago about the challenges that open accessibility. But in 
other symptoms, they also are enabling accessibility for, so it, I, I suppose the question here is what sort of accessibility do you need? Uh, one of our more popular stories was about an open spinner machine and a story about Braille and, and how uh, opening content and allowing it to be translated into those different formats and, and different methods of delivery is a, makes a huge difference for people with accessibility problems. So that's, that's another way that openness makes a significant, serious change for people uh, not just in some superficial, idealistic way. It feels like there are kind of two trains of thought here, one of which is that we're in a period of time in which openness is sort of radically altering our perception of institutions and our relationship to them, to content and the like. The other would be that there are a large number of people who have sort of lived on the fringes of school. Um, a lot of the internet entrepreneurs, a lot of the makers, the autodidacts, who really didn't feel like school met their needs, and look to openness or open source software or the maker culture to help transform schools into what they wish they had been. And, and it's sort of an intriguing tension between those two visions, right? One vision would be the world is going to change and schools will change. The other is we want schools to change and we do it through these movements, but the reality is schools are highly resistant to that kind of different model of education. In your idealist, with your idealist hat on, do you find yourself more in the former category than the latter? Uh, hmm. <laughs> so, if we, we step outside the education world and just think about how everything has changed at this point, we are functioning more openly than we ever have before because of the internet. So you're talking to lots more people than you ever did before because of Facebook or Twitter or whatever social media you might use. And even if you hate social media, you have the opportunity through whatever you are doing online to be connected to more people than you ever, ever could in history. And that's one of the underlying principles of how open source and how openness work is connectedness and collaboration. And so just at that base level, people who are having kids who are starting school now and those kids themselves are entering that with a, a more open perspective than their parents and their grandparents and anyone before them did. And I think that that is going to flow into the way that they behave in the classroom and the way that we start to approach education. So I have a kindergartner, well, I guess as of two days from now, she'll be a first grader, and a three-year-old. And so the, her teachers and her administrators are closer to my age now. And there are people who, I, you know, I got online in early high school-ish. And so that's always been a part of my life. And even though I wasn't calling it openness or collaboration or any of that then, that's been a part of my entire adult life. And I think that's going to become increasingly true, and it's going to make education more open, and it's going to then lead to a, well, actually, so I was going to say it's going to lead to more open software. I think it's going to work the other way. I think as people see the benefits of open software, because that's an easy thing to get into a classroom, into a student's hands, into a teacher's hands, 
then we spread from there into using more open principles in general. I'm not even sure that I'm answers your question. It does. I'm interested in some feedback from our audience here too about their own personal experiences and about the broader perspective of the school systems within which they work. But I'm going to give you a hard question here, which is it feels as though Apple, the iPod, the iPhone, and the iPad have gained much more traction in schools as non-open systems than most of the open initiatives. How, you know, how does that fit into your perspective of what's happening? And is it just the case that we will choose convenience over openness just because that's how we operate? I, I wish I could predict how the world is going to turn out for Apple and iPads, and Steve Jobs is no fan of, of openness in particular. But uh, when I was a kid, Apple thought that putting Apple computers into every classroom in this country was going to make them successful in the home market, and that didn't work out. It seems to be working out better with the, the iPods and the iPhones and the iPads. In fact, my aforementioned kindergartner was sitting and I walked into school the other day. She was sitting in the hallway reading books on an iPod. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Android isn't making progress as well. And I'm seeing more, so uh, for those who, who don't know anything about me, which is probably everybody, I also uh, blog for a site called Geek Mom uh, that's on Wired.com. And it's interesting how many more apps for kids we get for the iOS than we do for Android. But it's starting to change. I'm starting to see more apps on Android and more attention paid to that. The biggest challenge. And, and I'm not going to pretend that, that iPads aren't incredibly popular. But it, the problem is you're comparing uh, a device to many devices. So Android has more eyeballs on it than iOS. However, there are so many Android devices that when you compare any one of those to iPad, there's no contest at all. And that makes it a huge problem for the developers because you can't just develop once like someone developing for iOS does. They develop it for an iPad and it goes on the iPad and that's it. If you want to develop for Android, you've got gobs and gobs of hardware compatibility problems. And that's going to be a huge, huge uphill battle. Yeah, I wonder if the, does this doesn't reflect an actual dichotomy in our, in just in human nature which is sort of both the sharing and the competition and you know our perspectives on both you know and clearly the fragmentation of android and I'm an android fanboy everything I own that's handheld is android you know does make it harder for the developers to develop um, and, and and as much as I'm an android fanboy I'm using google chrome on my android devices versus firefox because the functionality of Chrome is so much better. So I sort of feel like I live in two different worlds. I'm an, I'm an idealist in some areas and a pragmatist in others. And I'm sometimes discouraged at how easily I give up my moral conviction for convenience. I have a, an old post. I wish I could remember the title of it. I'll try to find it for you. I have an old post on opensource.com pretty much about exactly that, about how Sometimes you compromise those ideals. I have a Kindle. I love my Kindle. I can't even describe to you how much I love my Kindle, and I didn't even think I wanted one. But it 
could not be left open. Now, when I got my Kindle, I didn't know about the Kobo. I would tell anybody now who wanted one to go get a Kobo, which is an open source, pretty much identical to the Kindle e-reader. But we all, we all have to make those choices. Unless you're going to be Richard Spalman and lock yourself in a bubble and refuse to use anything non-free, you have to make compromises sometimes. I know plenty okay. of Linux programmers who have Microsoft machines for gaming. <laughs> Okay, so before we move on from opensource.com, one of the descriptions that uh, it was in your bio or somewhere that I read was about um, helping make communities better. Uh, what can we learn from open source communities? Oh, so much. So I, uh, I, I think I told you when we were talking a little on email before this, uh, it actually started for me when I went to a free culture conference. I'm not an open source or free software conference, but a free culture conference in Berlin about a year and a half ago. And I saw that there's this growing free culture movement. That's exactly what we're talking about on opensource.com, about openness as a culture, that is completely unaware that open source software exists and has solved so many problems for them. And then as I got more involved in open education communities and started going to you know, many conferences at larger events or the open education conference, I would hear people talking about problems and even things as basic as a fear of collaboration and a reluctance to share that open source software stands as an example of. You know, here's how you collaborate. Here's how you share. But there's a huge reluctance. And until you can get past that, that very basic fear of sharing, it's hard to move on to the transparency and the rapid prototyping. And you really have to begin by changing that mindset, integrating, I'm going to be open into everything you do. And it's hard. I, I, see, uh, I see new people join Red Hat all the time who get hired from traditional companies, and they're just stunned by collaboration and, and the way we have this company-wide mailing list where absolutely anybody can call you out on anything that you've done. And it's a huge shocker, that level of collaboration and that level of eyeballs on, on things you do. But that's what makes open source software successful with enough eyes all bug in the shire. You know, there's collaboration works is what it comes down to. But collaboration doesn't work unless you're willing to share. So we're getting some really good comments in the chat, uh, you know, especially about the fact that uh, there's a lot of collaborating in K-12, especially in, with social media and teachers working with each other. There is um, uh, sharing. Uh, and then there are apps that work on a variety of platforms. Um, and and in, in many ways, Web 2.0, while it may not necessarily be open, is all about collaborating. So it, it does seem like the story is nuanced and it exists at, at a couple of levels. But if you, if you think about your definition of collaboration, transparency, and kind of rapid iteration or improvement, it feels as though that doesn't necessarily mean the code has to be open, but there, there can be a level of openness in a community. Would that be fair? What do you mean by the code doesn't have to be open? Well, I don't know. I, I'm not getting the code when I use a Web 2.0 app, right? But I do get lots of Oh, I see what you're saying, that, that we have these tools of collaboration without the tools themselves being open source. 
Correct. And and how you feel about that kind of depends on where you fall on the open source devotion spectrum, and that goes back to what we were talking about about the places where you compromise. So I suspect a lot of the people listening aren't aware of Identica, I D E N T I C A. It is essentially an open source microblogging platform, open source Twitter, more or less. It's changed significantly with a, a recent release uh, that makes it look a little less Twitter-like, but uh, I know a lot of open source software people who will only use Identica. They won't use Twitter. But opensource.com, which you would think if anyone is going to have followers who are going to use Identica, it's opensource.com. Our Identica followers are at any given time about 10% of our Twitter followers. And from my point of view, I can't turn my back on 90% of my audience that prefers to use Twitter. And so I'm on Twitter and I'm on Identica, which is a little more work for me, but a lot more ears to hear the open source message, which is the entire point of what we're trying to do. This is really interesting, and, I, and we could you know, probably spend days talking about this, and many people have. Um, I did start a wiki. Uh, on the benefits of openness, because interestingly, there are a lot of different kinds of openness in education. And I'm, I'm going to put the link here. And when I was at this, okay. what was called the Open Education Summit a couple of weeks ago, um, we we started to try and define the variety of different kinds of openness. Right? I mean, there can be open courses, there can be open curricula, there's open data open learning, open licensing, open source hardware, um, you know, across all of these different kinds of openness. Are these all things that opensource.com is hoping to cover? Absolutely. And if anybody listening would like to contribute about any of those things, plug, plug, <laughs> you can shoot me an email. I am Ruth at redhat.com. And I will help you write opensource.com articles about all of those open education things. Very good. Okay, I want to switch a little to the maker world. Um, I was at a Maker Fair 2012 in San Mateo a few weeks back and did an interview series as a part of a DIY learning pavilion. If I read the web correctly, you're involved maybe in the organization of a North Carolina Maker Fair coming up. Is that correct? I, I am tangentially involved, I would say. OpenSource.com had a booth at Maker Fair NC last year, and which is one of many, many, absolutely just about anywhere you are probably now in the U.S. at least has one of these many Maker Fair events nearby. Uh, and I was helping the, the blog for a while. I haven't done a whole lot with it, but one of the organizers is a friend, and they're great events. I highly recommend that anybody go to one. The next big one is in September in New York City, World Maker Fair. And it's the second biggest class in the Bay Area, and I'll be there. You can come see me there. So what's the connection between your own kind of personality of being a maker, which, which involves everything from biscuit making to Star Wars birthday parties to costumes and crafts? What's the connection between openness and the maker world? Well, I, I think it's a, a very easy crossover. I, it comes down to Make Magazine has this model. You can get it on t-shirts and all that says if you can't open it, you don't own it. And that's just open source principles applied to all of the devices you own. And there's a growing open hardware movement 
which uh, started working on an open hardware definition. I'm going to try to say when, and I'm going to get it wrong. I feel like it was last September or September a year ago. Uh, and that is an attempt to create, there's an, an open source definition, and so this is an attempt to create a, a statement of principles and definition for open source hardware. And that means a whole lot of things. There are the Arduino boards and the clones of the Arduino boards, which are, uh, for those who aren't familiar, open source, little open source hardware boards that you can make all sorts of electronics with. There's a version called the LilyPad Arduino that is, uh, you use conductive thread and you can sew it into clothing. And so there are some really interesting, uh, less education changing, but more world changing sorts of efforts going on with the, the open hardware. There's a fun dress designed by a Dutch company, Danish company, sorry. Uh, called the CO2 dress, and it uses a lily pad Arduino and a series of LEDs uh, to sense the CO2 in the air and the LEDs flash in different patterns to let you know about the air quality. Uh, and then from there, it goes on to the 3D printing world, the web apps and the uh, MakerBots. And what they're able to do for prototyping is amazing because 3D printing before this came along was incredibly expensive, prohibitively expensive. And now anybody with $1,000 or a local hackerspace can 3D print small objects and prototype things that they want to have made. And uh, the next step for that, which I think is just amazing and super fun, I have never ever, so occasionally I'm serving Twitter or whatever and I see some news of something amazing coming out, and I think, wow, we, we live in a future. Where's my chat pack? I have never thought we live in a future so much as the day I saw the word self-replicating printer. Those words still amaze me every day. And there are some projects, unfortunately not open projects yet, but, uh, the 3D printing projects for creating organic things. It's starting, the, the eventual goal is organs. What they're starting with is blood vessels. And so they use your own cells so that your body won't reject it. And they print a little circle of cells. And then there's a layer of biogel and a little circle of cells and a layer of biogel. And in a couple of hours, you have a blood vessel that your body won't reject. And 10 years down the road, that's a heart that's made from your own cells. That's organ transplants. That's huge. That's serious changing the world stuff. And when it comes back to the openness, Somebody asked uh, one of the guys who's working on one of these organic 3D printers at Clemson University. Someone asked him in a panel one day, so I have a rep that. One day, could we have what you're making, uh, but in a rep wrap? Would that be, can I have that at home, open source, whatever? And the guy said, well, the only difference between what I have and your rep wrap is the material that it's printing. So conceivably, one day, yes. So. Um, it was really fascinating at Maker Faire to watch families. It felt very much like this was a family activity with uh, activities at every level for the children and for the parents. Um, draw some lines for me between the Maker philosophy or movement and education. Lines between them? Yeah, I'm interested in uh, oh, the you, mean you would them. make between yeah connecting 
the concepts of, of the making culture and, and how that relates to schools, especially how does it relate to schools in an era of sort of high stakes testing and oftentimes the lack of sort of hands-on activities. Well, the, the maker culture certainly speaks more to the autodidact, like you mentioned before, and and the people who are enthusiastic about learning. And that's the adults you see there, are the people who who would probably go back to school every day if they didn't need to have jobs to pay the mortgage, and sharing that infectiousness with their children. But what's great, and anybody who's been a teacher has seen this, when you can put those things in the kids' hands and teach them that way, they learn so much more than, than teaching to the tests eternally. Uh, somebody just uh, posted in the chat a series of videos about printing the heart. Again, so amazing. But uh, you know what would be great is just massive organized field trips to make repairs everywhere. And I, it would be great if we could get more of that into the hands of kids. And, and one way is all of the super cheap open hardware, the Raspberry Pis have finally come out, which is a little $25 computer. Um, there are a couple of, of others, the all winter historic shipping. The QBox is actually in a box, and it's about $100 significantly more. But um, the, the first uh, NES compositions, the robotics, putting those things in kids' hands so that they're, they're learning by looking at it and doing it instead of looking at a whiteboard. Well, I know Dale Doherty has gotten funding for this maker education initiative, which is something akin to um, school gardens or after-school robotics programs. It's kind of creating a space where things can happen that hopefully will influence just by virtue of being there and people being able to take advantage of them. Um, I, I, I don't know if do you that Hobby Hobby blog of yours is that one you make public? It was harder for me to find, but if I can I put that up? Oh, it's uh, that's just sort of my my personal blog that I had a long time ago, and uh, usually I post to it starting about this time of year when I start working on massive science fiction costumes. <laughs> to be honest, uh, as I spend more time on OpenSource.com and Geekbomb, I spend a lot less time posting on my personal blog because I would rather talk to you know thousand of people than myself. <laughs> well, so tell me in your own interactions with your kids' schools, and I don't know how old your kids are, but are you finding that you're able to influence the kinds of activities they do at school? Mine are six and three, so only one of them is in school. We've had just one year of kindergarten so far, and uh, I haven't really much effort get trying to, to integrate any sort of technology into their classrooms. They already, they've got some pretty serious technology going on in my kids' school. Every classroom has probably half a dozen computers and uh, what do you call it, the smart board thing where you actually go up and touch the whiteboard at where it's projecting the slides and stuff. I feel kind of old when I see that my kindergartner's class has ridiculous technology like this. <laughs> I do hope that uh, at some point in the future I'm going to be able to, to do more of that. And I would love to do things like a workshop on Scratch for all of the kids. If you're not familiar with Scratch, it's a drag and drop programming. Uh, sort of like I, when I was a kid, I learned on Logo where you just typed 
you know, up ten and things like that. But Scratch lets you drag and drop the blobs of language so they fit together like puzzle pieces. So it, it introduces you to those concepts of how the terms fit together and into making a program do something. And I think it would be great to, to do some workshops like that. And I know that there are, because I live in an area, I live uh, in the Research Triangle Park, Raleigh, North Carolina area. And so there is no shortage here of technology interested people. And I know there are already several people in this district working on those sorts of things. So I don't think that at least here it's all on me. And that's good. <laughs> I was interested in your uh, geek mom posts, um, biscuit making, Star Wars parties, and I'm curious, what defines being a geek? Because in a lot of ways, um, those are sort of traditional homemaking activities that have often been um, sort of part of the complicated discussion about women in the home, and, and I read your Bones post. Um, I wouldn't have thought of biscuit making as being a geek mom, but describe that for me. You just asked my favorite hot button question of the week. Good work. <laughs> uh, geek mom spun off of another wired blog called Geek Dad. And one of the geek dads wrote a post just a week or two ago about how the geek community is excluding people by imposing unwritten requirements of what it means to be a geek. To me, I, I, we've reached this point, this wonderful, wonderful place where uh, maker fairs are happening and the Bay Area maker fair sells out. They, they don't have enough room for everybody who would like to buy a ticket. Iron Man and Captain America and the Avengers are banking the box office. Uh, nobody is even coming close. Things that weren't cool when we were kids that made you an ostracized geek are now popular. And he wrote this post about how we're imposing this you're not geek enough culture and that that's surprising for kids who were excluded as geeks and that's not okay and all. And yet I kind of feel the opposite that there needs if you know if we're going to define ourselves as geeks that there should actually be some sort of definition. The geek mom approach uh, many of them, perhaps most of them, actually disagree with me. And they've defined geek as being obsessed with something. And so they use it as uh, a word that requires a modifier. So you could be a football geek, whereas I don't see football as a particularly geeky pursuit. And so what I, I hope I do, at least in most of my geek mom posts, is bring those things together. So you mentioned the Star Wars birthday parties. The Star Wars isn't geeky. I don't really know what is. And so I made my kids this. Uh, pretty cool Star Wars cake, and so that's where the you know bringing the making the cake, the mom thing comes together with the geek thing. The biscuits, I tried to make it more about the science, the the geeky aspect of it. If you read it, it was about the protein content of the flour and how that changes how the biscuits turn out. And so I tried to make it sort of a combo deal when I'm posting on Geek Mom. Yes, it was very interesting for me because. Uh, um, my wife is an accomplished chef, and she, she 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 loves being in the kitchen. But for her, it's also associated with kind of typical mom responsibilities that carry some you know some awkwardness uh, about focusing on that. 
um, and, and you talk about rolling fondant. And um, there, there's something that seems to me to be uh, very healthy about those kinds of activities being elevated to the collaborative sharing geek status. And, and I hope so. I try to extend. I, uh, if you scroll back through more of my old posts, I do a lot of, I like to do cake decorating. I like to build crazy 3D cakes and, and ladies stay roll fondant and make wacky stuff. And within that cake community, there's a lot of not collaboration. There's a lot of, this is mine, and I'm not going to tell you how I did it, and you can look at my pretty picture. And so I'm, a, I'm applying the, the open source principles that I preach by day into the, the caking, the costuming, and all of the stuff I do by night. I also try to always post, when I finish the costume, I post the, the make instructions for everything that I've done. I post cake how-tos so that I'm not just saying, hey, look at this cool thing I made. I'm saying, here's how you can do it, too. And I also like to encourage people. I, I think it's funny if you, if you serve knitting, message boards, crocheting, crafting, things like that. Sooner or later, you'll come across somebody who says, I really like the pattern for this blue scarf. Could you tell me how to make it in green? And so <laughs> it, it, it always seems so simple to me. I'm like, well, use the green yarn instead of the blue. And that seems so obvious to me. But I try to remember that, that making those small changes, which is how, again, how open source software works, take this thing that I've created and make it your own isn't always obvious. And so I try to help people figure out how they can take something that I've created and make it their own. In fact, that Star Wars cake I based off of, if you Google uh, action figure cake, I think it will come up. There was this cool cake somebody made that's, uh, it's not it's not the action figures themselves. It's layers that are reminiscent of their costumes, or like one layer has a Hulk fist coming out. And so I, it was sort of reminiscent of that cake, of my own little derivative work. Ruth, we're almost out of time. I want to ask one final question. Um, at the same time that we're seeing the Internet provide this incredible opportunity for openness, it also feels as though we're seeing uh, increased opportunities for surveillance. And in a lot of ways, um, that, that we're living through a, a period of conflict between two paradigms about sort of how we interact as human beings. Um, are you ultimately optimistic that openness wins? I am. I am always generally optimistic that openness wins. But again, privacy and security are the flip side of transparency, and it has to be a balance. And since I am an eternal optimist, yeah, you know, there are people. If, if you've been on Facebook this week, or at least on everybody I know's Facebook page, people are posting this ridiculous forward that says, now that Facebook is public, you have to post this message on your Facebook page that says that they can't use your pictures. I'm like, well, number one, your post is meaningless. Number two, if you don't want it shared, you shouldn't share it on the Internet. And I kind of approach the Internet from this public approach. I don't put it online unless I intend for someone to see it and like it and use it. I understand that not everybody approaches the world that way. So I, I try to be hopeful, I try to be optimistic, but I also know that, that because I have this less private approach to things, that perhaps I am not the one who's going to solve that problem. 
Ruth, uh, thanks so much for coming on. We do finish on time as a courtesy to everybody involved. And I'm so sorry that you had trouble with the audio as you started there. But I really appreciate your coming on and talking about these topics and, and sure love the fact that you have exemplified them so much in your own life. Thanks. Coming up on thanks the future education. Oh, most delightful to have you here. Thursday, uh, Christine DePaulo talks about student branding, which should be a lot of fun. Uh, and, and lots more coming up on futureofeducation.com. Thanks to Ruth Seeley. Thanks to you for joining us tonight. Take care, everybody. Have a great night or day.